0: Hi there. Today's March tenth, twenty fourteen, and this is Epicenter Bitcoin, episode ten. Hiding in plain sight. On today's show, we'll
1: talk about the curious story of Darian Satoshi Nakamoto. We'll talk about recent transactions indicating Mount Fox may still possess large amounts of Bitcoin. We're talking about Mark Capelli's shady past. Blockchain Uninfor's acquisition of RTBTC and the new
0: VAT guidance in the UK. If you like the work we're doing and you'd like to support the show, please go to epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips for our tipping address. Hello and welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, episode 10.
1: Yeah, nice. We've made it to 10... well, 10... Plus all the special episodes we've
0: done, yeah. but yeah, it's awesome to be here. It seems like such a milestone. Uh, my name is Sébastien Couture. I am a Canadian-born user experience designer and developer based in Lille, France, and also the founder and uh, organizer of Bitcoin Talks Lille. And I'm Brian fabian Crane. I'm a
1: Berlin-based entrepreneur, and I'm also the founder of the Bitcoin Service Berlin
0: Group. How are you doing this week, Brian?
1: Yeah, Good. Very good. Um, I've started working kind of on the content because I'm I'm working on these Bitcoin investment workshops, so it's so much work, but I'm kind of you know developing the content for that workshop. So I've been working quite a bit
0: on that this week. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so the idea is it's gonna be a one day workshop for retail investors, so people who you know buy stocks or bonds or real estate. And uh, the idea is to teach them about Bitcoin how it works um, what it means as a as an investment how it would affect their you know portfolio how you know how private public keys work also the technical stuff how security works how you buy it how you store it um, what the tax implications are just kind of everything so the idea would be to take someone who you know, maybe he's heard of Bitcoin and is interested but doesn't know much. Uh, to that, that, at the end of the day, they'd be comfortable of, in terms of understanding Bitcoin and knowing that if they wanted to invest in Bitcoin, how it works and how to go about it. And you say retail investors. Uh... Well, I think retail investors is a term for people who invest their own money. Oh, okay. S- so uh just kind of normal people, you know. Like,
0: Let's see. Okay. I,
1: I, not… not uh, it wouldn't be designed for, you know, financial institutions or funds or things like that. Okay.
0: That's really cool. It seems to be uh, kind of a, a need for education there in, in in that kind of field. I think so, yeah. And so uh, these are workshops up. you'd be giving as part of the meetup?
1: No, no. This would be separate. Separate. So it'd be uh, kind of like a business, I guess. Huh. You know, so I, it would, yeah, it would be full day workshops and uh, I would like to do them here in Berlin and maybe other German cities and maybe Switzerland and England. Uh, so
0: that sounds really cool.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, I I mean, I'm, I'm working on the first part, which is sort of how Bitcoin works. Uh-huh. And, uh, I've looked actually through the slideshows that I found and I, don't really. So I'm, you know, I'm doing everything from scratch, and it's, it's a lot of work.
0: <laughs> yeah, the how Bitcoin works um, presentation, I guess, or a slide deck is, is kind of hard to put together because you have. I'm having the same problem too. I'm going to be doing a, a, kind of a mini conference at a co-working space where I work, and I'm trying right. to. Determine what angle to take uh, so this this is going to be kind of a just introductory conference to bitcoin i don't want to go into like it it's, it's very very much kind of introductory uh, and i'm debating on what kind of angle to take, so should I Really, just cover kind of the practical aspects of it and where where it's going and how it can benefit us and you know, how people can use it in practical terms, like from day to day, day to day use. Or should I go into the technical aspects at all? Like, is that even interesting to people? Like, yeah, so, um, you know, no. in, in most cases, when you explain Bitcoin to someone, you end up going in, into these technical kind of realms, which for most people, I think, is not very interesting. Uh, so it, it's kind of challenging to try to.
1: I yeah I completely agree with you. I think often when you talk with people the the kind of really important things are, you know, it's peer to peer, there's no middleman, it's really cheap, it's global, it's not controlled by government etc and then you talk about the possibilities. I think that's really important and that's really relevant. But then people will start asking about mining and uh you know how bitcoins are mined because a lot of people have heard about that and so they want to know. Then when you start explaining mining and blocks and the blockchain, et cetera, that's just really, really hard to grasp for people. Yeah. So I, I think it is it is it is very tricky indeed. Mm. Um, and especially the target audience here would not be technical. So I, I, I will talk about mining and all those things because I think one doesn't need to understand them um, to understand Bitcoin. But I would not want to have that as the sort of what is Bitcoin. Not yeah. in that section, you know. I yeah. think that there should be a section of like what is Bitcoin, why is it important, and then want, you can have a separate section of going more in depth and also kind of with the clear premise that to understand why Bitcoin is important, you don't completely need to understand that section. So beca- yeah. because it's not it's not essential, really. I mean, I think if you if you understand um, just roughly, you know, for example, that you can't – there's no middleman, so you can't be censored. You understand this importance of low transaction costs, etc. You can understand why Bitcoin is a huge change, a huge invention. Right, without having to go into uh, related really technology. Without aspects. having to understand exactly how the blockchain works. And for example, then if you talk about why is mining important for the security of the network – um, then you kind of – I think you have to start talking about the 51% attack. And that's just – that's just for people completely new to Bitcoin. It's just not where you want to go.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's a good balance to have between just kind of uh, educating on the underlying principles and having to go into really the technical aspects of it. And, and that, that line is really – difficult to place on the on the spectrum um like that that cursor is what I meant to say that cursor is difficult to position on on the spectrum like where where do i stop like cuz it's easy to get into that kind of technical rabbit hole and it's like oh so yeah so this works like this and then like you know the blockchain works like this and when you mine like they get so um you know, I'm, yeah yeah i agree
1: I agree. And if you go to SlideShare, and I looked at a lot of the Bitcoin uh, presentations there, they tend to be more technical and not really on why is this important.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I I think this is not the right emphasis for a general audience.
0: Yeah. Uh, this is what we're going to need moving forward if we're going to uh, try to attain some sort of mass adoption is to bring it to a level of understanding where most people can, will understand uh, the underlying principles, why why this is a good thing you know, how they can benefit from it how they can use it on a day-to-day basis uh, if they want to learn the technical aspects you know, those people will go in and learn the technical aspects I, I always bring it back to email um, or, or any any sort of technology that people use daily uh, those who are interested in the in knowing how to I don't know, how to code or how the underlying protocols work. You know, those people go into it, but most people just you know, use Gmail every day and not worry about how email gets sent. Yeah, completely agree. Exactly. And you can totally
1: understand why email is super important, why email has changed the world, et cetera, without understanding how exactly emails are sent from one server to another and how the protocol works.
0: Yeah. Uh, I agree very much. So just briefly before we get into the topics, uh, I just want to mention that uh, the Bitcoin Talks meetup number two is this week on Wednesday, uh, sorry, Thursday uh 7.30 at La Machine. The details are on meetup.com if you search for Bitcoin Talks And I'll be doing a talk about uh, Mt. Gox and um, just kind of to explain everything that's been happening over the last few weeks. Uh, definitely this <laughs> research we've been doing for the podcast has been lot of help (laughs) in building that presentation. Uh, Also, we've got some people coming from Paris um, to uh, do some presentations and kind of a a recap of the recent meetups in Paris. And there was one, there was a meetup uh, just this week, actually, on Thursday, and Nick Carey of blockchain.info was there. it was quite successful. It was like more than 60 people. And in fact, their next meetup, which is next, which is this month, later this month, it's going to be taking place at a co-working space where Paymium is, um, where Paymium's yeah. offices are, and they've limited it to sixty people. Like there's a waiting list of I don't know how many people <laughs> to get in. It's really crazy. Like the community there is just really. Exploring. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot going on in Paris as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the little meetup has kind of taken notice uh, from the Parisian community. I've had some people contact me. Like I said, two people are coming from Paris. Um, and some people that wanted to come that couldn't uh, that can't attend, but uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to going down there for for a meetup soon.
1: Oh, is you actually? It's funny. We ours is on our next meetup okay. is on
0: Thursday too. Oh, cool. We should teleconference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's get into these stories. There have been many. <laughs>
1: Once again, yeah, there's, there's a lot to speak. Yeah. Of and course, the that, story on everybody's mind is: Have we found Satoshi?
0: Yeah, <laughs> it, it it was crazy because well, i when was it Thursday or Wednesday? It was Thursday, March sixth. I saw this and and I texted you for something completely different. I said, "So, did you hear about the Satoshi thing?" And you're like, "No!" <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, what the hell is going on? Um, uh, you know, our, it, it's funny, Kyle. Kind of. Going back, uh, uh, after a few days have passed, um, and kind of gauging our reactions at the, at the time uh, when, when this was all happening, I was saying, how, "How is it possible that? How would it be possible that uh, this is not true?" You know, how, and, and you were saying, "No, I don't believe this. I don't. I, I don't think this is no, this is complete bullshit." Like, and yeah, it turns out, well, most likely that that's the case, right? That this is just completely like um, nonsense.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I think if you, it, this is just horrific what this journalist has done. It's such, it's such a, a shitty job and extremely poor journalism. Yeah. I mean, I think we can go through all the details, but uh, yeah, really embarrassing, I think.
0: Uh, especially for Newsweek, that was trying to kind of kick, you know, kick off their new uh, yeah paper magazine, and I mean,
1: I I just hope they leave it at one issue and don't have the silly <laughs> idea to continue this experiment and actually publish uh, a regular magazine. I think they can. I, it was probably a good idea
0: that they stopped with that. Yeah. So let's just kind of go through what happened. So on March 6th, um, yeah. Newsweek published a story, a very long story for like 4,500 words uh, entitled uh, The Face Behind Bitcoin, where the uh, journalist, and her name is uh, Leah McGrath Goodman, an experienced journalist with uh, you know, many awards and accolades and has worked for many, many years in uh, journalism, uh, claims that she found satoshi nakamoto living in temple city california in a small home and he drives a corolla and um and so the you know the, this story kind of i think for a lot of people was in the bitcoin community the, the impression that i'm getting and the, the kind of uh feedback that we've gotten from the bitcoin community is that like who cares you know if we found him or not and who cares who he is you know and this guy should just be left alone so la- later that day uh, he was completely just f- surrounded by journalists you know, eh, 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 all the journalism community uh just kind of gathered around his house to uh try to get more information from him and he chose to uh go with uh an Associated Press journalist to kind of clear his name, to and, get a free lunch, and to get a free lunch. <laughs> and so, a video <laughs> a, a video was released later that day, which, uh, in which he denies having any involvement, and that essentially the journalist, the original journalist, or uh, Leah McGrath Goodman, misunderstood him or misquoted him because of his uh, lack of. Um, English skills. This is a Japanese uh, American man who's been living in the United States for several decades. He also he also said, "I have never communicated with the Bitcoin." Yeah, so just the way he, the way he talks <laughs> it's about it's pretty it just goes to show that he doesn't really know much about it and hadn't and states that he hadn't heard about Bitcoin up until recently. Um, I I, I wonder though if. This has – I don't think this has been talked about, but I, I wonder if other people had not uh, previously approached him to, to to ask him like, you know, <laughs> are you Satoshi Nakamoto of Bitcoin or are, are you involved in Bitcoin? Yeah. I'm sure this wasn't the first time that somebody had approached him.
1: Yeah, that's possible. I mean I, I think the interesting thing – so there, there was like a, an interview – I watched two or three interviews with the journalist – After that, where they were, she was basically kind of justifying Mm -hmm. her story, and you know, I think there was a good one on Bloomberg where they're very critical. (laughs) One guy's like, "Is this journalism?" So um, her rationale was, which is completely uh, ridiculous, but her rationale was that uh, the way she proceeded with this was by exclusion. So she looked at different people, and it's like you know, is it not you? And then no evidence. So we move on to the next one. Of course, that's presuming the name is real, right? So if you assume that the person really was called Satoshi Nakamoto, then there's a bunch of them in the US, I don't know, a handful. So I think she went to like through each of those. And then the one that sort of roughly wasn't completely off because he once studied physics and, you know, done some sort of IT stuff. And I guess was unemployed, so for for a few years before um, Bitcoin was created. So you know, it could be that he was working on Bitcoin. Of course, can't prove otherwise. So she was like, by exclusion, it must be him. Uh, which is absurd, you know, yeah. C- a completely ridiculous way of going about it.
0: Yeah. And so the um, way that she deducted I- that uh, that this guy was in fact Satoshi Nakamoto of Bitcoin is <laughs> that. The day where she went to his house and and kind of confronted him about it uh, or asked him about it, Um, well, first of all, he called the police because, for whatever reason, um, he didn't want to talk to her. And his response to, you know, are, are you involved in Bitcoin or are you Satoshi Nakamoto of Bitcoin is... I am no longer involved in that and I cannot discuss it. And so he dismisses it and says uh, that it's been turned over to other people. They are in charge of it now and I have no other connection. So mind you, this is a man who perhaps has a limited understanding of of English. But
1: just one important thing is we don't have a recording of the whole conversation. So even if the quote is correct, we don't know what it refers to. Right. So I mean, from you know, sort of my experience as a journalist, you know, there's a uh, who who knows, right? I mean, right. this is very very possible. I mean, I think likely that this was taken out of context.
0: I think so, but um, but but the police that were there, that were present, who witnessed this conversation, came back to say that uh, you know the quote is actually correct. That this is what he said.
1: Yeah, sure. I'm sure the quote's correct, but you know, how much does that mean? I right. mean, if you just look at the quote, it doesn't prove anything.
0: So she's basing all of her discovery on on this one quote and so we can dismiss it as you know either him just wanting to get rid of her or we can kind of say that uh perhaps he's talking about other things you know like you said it's out of context he was involved this this man has worked for the u.s government uh, on multiple projects where he's apparently under some sort of an nda and can't talk about it so perhaps he was referring to those projects uh perhaps he was just you know didn't express himself correctly so there's the, the the logic behind her, you know, finding of Shitoshi Nakamoto and and the 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 kind of evidence that she has is based completely on this one quote. Yeah. So out of yeah. this 4500 4, 4, word article, there's like three lines. That this is what I'm basing my 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 claims upon. Like it's completely just
1: yeah, and some circumstantial stuff. You no, know, is that like his family says they say he's secretive and things like that. And, you know, he's once studied physics, etc., you know, which, of course, do, at least, you know, I mean, they perhaps make it more likely, but it's far from evidence. Yeah.
0: Now, what are some of the um, kind of counterclaims, if, if we take the information that was, that has been released, well, like, so what Satoshi Nakamoto, the guy who disappeared from the internet a few years ago, has said and information we now know about this man, Dorian Satoshi Nakamoto, what are the counter claims or the things that don't line up?
1: Uh, There's a few things. I mean, I think one thing I looked at, which is sort of extremely in the face, is if you look at uh, Dorian Nakamoto's Amazon reviews. There were a few reviews of him, like buying some razor blades, and and it's just terribly written. Like his English is really bad, and also kind of incoherent. So if you compare that to the Bitcoin white paper or or Satoshi's forum posts, it is extremely hard to believe that that should have been the same person. Yeah. So, and that's and then of course there was Satoshi's own posting. Um, on the P to P Foundation site. After I mean, I guess that was after the story, but yeah. still.
0: Has that been confirmed?
1: That it was I, actually him. So uh, yeah, let's just uh, briefly say. So there's a site called P to P Foundation, I think. Um. And. They have some kind of forum there and uh, that there's an account on there, which was used in 2009 to post uh, a description of Bitcoin and a link to the white paper. So that was, I mean, just at at the time when uh, Bitcoin came out. And uh, of course, that supposedly was Satoshi Nakamoto who uh, who posted that. And uh, there was, there had been no activity since then, really. Um, and so he made a comment on there uh, saying, I am not Dorian Nakamoto. Now, most likely uh, that is indeed him because uh, he, at least he was in control of that account, most likely in 2009. And I think the, um, the person running that site did confirm that the email address linked to the account is the same one that's on the white paper. So on the white paper, he has this GMX email address, which is um, a German f- free email provider, kind of like, you know, Hotmail or something. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, it seems, I would say it seems very likely that it is him. Yeah. We, of course, they don't know 100% for sure, but...
0: Well, at least if there's one good news out of the story is that Satoshi's still alive. (laughs) We know. Exactly. We at least got some information from him if it's not not this Dorian Nakamoto guy. Exactly.
1: So, I mean, I I don't know exactly when the last time was that there was any kind of sign of life from him, but I think from in mid-2010, he stopped his involvement in Bitcoin. I don't know if there was something afterwards, but I, I think no. So, first... First um, sign of life in many years, so that's cool
0: yeah so the kind of my thoughts on this and what I've seen a messaged a while ago is that the the Bitcoin community's reaction to this is like we don't care who Satoshi Nakamoto is it really doesn't matter it doesn't matter if it's this guy or some other guy like it, this is not uh, what's going to make Bitcoin advance or not or disappear or not. Like it's completely irrelevant. And the, the overwhelming kind of reaction to this from the Bitcoin community uh, with regards to Dorian Nakamoto is that uh, you know, this guy should be left alone uh, because he's old, he's in bad health, uh, he deserves his peace. Especially if like my, my thoughts is like if, if this guy is really Satoshi Nakamoto – he deserves to be left alone just because of what he's created you know um yeah but that's also unrealistic right i, oh, mean, I yeah, think if of he really if
1: they did find him the guy would have no i mean now it seems reasonable that perhaps in a few months he will have relative his relative peace back um but if he really was him and there was evidence for him you know knowing uh, you know, if you if you look at how journalism works, there's no way he would ever uh, be in peace again. And again, also if you think about it, let's say Bitcoin achieves the potential that we think it has, so it becomes a sort of dominant currency, a payment system, etc. Then uh, he will have enormous wealth. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, it's we shouldn't expect that he'll be left alone.
0: So, yeah, just kind of a couple of things on that. So regardless of whether this guy is Toshi Nakamoto or not, which I think we can probably say he isn't, this journalist was very irresponsible in publishing this paper because it's uh, speculated and quite... Uh, with a lot of certainty that Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin has a lot of Bitcoins up to a million. Right. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that, that's the estimate, a million. Uh, and so the, the, this would place who this person in a lot of danger because, and his family in a lot of danger because, you know, mm-hmm. it could open him up to being vulnerable to, uh, to attacks, uh, to, to theft, to murder, or, Or what have you. So, this was really kind of irresponsible from this journalist's, uh, for this journalist to do this.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I also saw uh, this interview on, I think it was um, with her afterwards, and she was like, Oh, of course, I didn't want all these journalists to harass him afterwards. This is just so hypocritical, you know, after she posted pictures of his house and his car. Yeah, and license plate and, and the response um, the, the news response
0: yeah. is you know we we engage and to be respectful uh, of privacy and rights of individuals like what the hell man like, you can't say that after you posted like the guy's pictures of the guy's house which were then like picked up on a uh, street view minutes later it's just completely just preposterous so I yeah, guess but, the- yeah I I yeah, go ahead. No, I guess the the kind of good thing out of this uh, is that there's kind of an outpouring of support from the bitcoin from the bitcoin community. Uh, Andreas Antonopoulos has uh, put up a fund uh, where people can donate money to to this guy for whatever legal or health problems he might have to pay for. Uh, and so far, there's like 42 bitcoins in there. So at least i don't know, I feel really bad for him, but you know, I think the the whole Bitcoin community as a whole just really really feels bad for him, regardless of who he is and are ready to support him and kind of maintaining his privacy,
1: yeah, I think that could be actually you know that could be a very good story to come out of this as well, you know it's kind of okay, it's settled, it's not him. But, you know, here's some you know some serious support. I mean, if it's like 42 Bitcoins, you know, that's some, uh, a very decent amount of money. And I think that might actually make a difference to him and really help him. So I think that would be great. Yeah. I think if we think of, like, you know, why did this happen? Of course, I think this has a lot to do with uh, Newsweek relaunching the print magazine. You know, let's say she's been working on this for two months. I mean, she obviously did a very bad job as a journalist, but still, like, let's say she wasn't there and they pushed her. It's like, hey, you know, the magazine is coming out. We have this editorial deadline. This is a huge story. Can we publish this? You know, and then she was probably like, yeah, yeah. I think, you you know, I guess I'm sure she wanted it too because such a big story if it's true. And I guess she really did believe it. So I think they just sort of, in my view, they, they were just too uh, greedy and too excited about having this big story, and they kind of threw out uh, proper journalism and a proper way of researching out of the window hmm. and uh, went ahead very irresponsibly with this, you know, story based on. Clearly insufficient evidence.
0: Yeah, and how, how could they not see where this would take them if, in fact, it was not correct? Right? How could they not? You, you know one thing
1: I was thinking about? Yeah. It seems very clear here that they did got zero feedback from the Bitcoin community. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think if they shown this to Bitcoin people, they would have been are you aware that you're like the 10th publication in the last years to try exactly the same thing? And are you sure that you actually do have the evidence? And I think they just clearly didn't do that, probably don't know the Bitcoin community, don't understand Bitcoin all too well. Um, And they sort of latched onto this and, hey, you know, we have the name and now we've tracked him down. And so I think that's, also, part of the reason why they didn't um, just went ahead of this sort of you know, ignorant of yeah, ignorant
0: of the sort of circumstances of what what they were doing. Absolutely, yeah. Bad journalism, bad decisions, irrespectful, You know, just completely irrespect- disrespectful to this man and his family. And his family yeah. who's uh, spoken out, by the way, like his brother posted uh, on Reddit, uh, kind of explaining his thoughts about it.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty funny post.
0: Yeah, he says asshole a lot. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> because absolutely every everyone, including himself, his brother, <laughs> and, and the general, is <laughs> an asshole.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: But yeah, I don't know, he seems to be a nice guy, just very uh very angry. Yeah. Which is un- understandable. Anything else? Okay, I I those? mean yeah, I think that's uh I guess perhaps we'll come back to it. I don't know, if there's some sort of more developments, if there's definite proof that it's not him and or I think it will be in, I think it would be very interesting to see as well is the effect this has on newsweek. I saw a quote somewhere where someone uh in in the on their staff said well this has been a huge success and of course in a sense if you think of you know how what what would be the best way to get attention for the newspaper or for the magazine then yes that's it right but if you look at um, the, the journalistic reputation of the paper, then this is perhaps the worst thing they could have done, at least if it really turns out that the story was wrong. So I think it would be interesting to see how does this affect Newsweek. I, I hope them the absolute worst. Um, so you know, may, maybe we'll come back to that to see kind of what's happened Um and how this all turns out next week, but uh, it, yeah, I think we've kind of covered it, and ho- hopefully, the guy will be left alone. And yeah,
0: yeah. Well, let's um, let's let's show our support, uh, and you know, everybody should go out and donate maybe like five five millibits.
1: Yeah, I, I would do that. I, I I have been wanting to do that. I haven't yet, but
0: I I will send five milliwei as well. So the the address, uh, if you go if on Reddit, you know you can find it easily if you just look up Op Antonopoulos fundraiser. Uh, he's got a post on Reddit where he has the address there. He also proves that it's him, so it's not a scam. Uh, the address is one Dorian and uh, a hex, so you'll notice it, and. Um,
1: yeah, yeah or just so. just look for Dorian Nakamoto uh, fundraiser,
0: and then uh, it's a second post. Yeah. On. So how this works, the donations are accepted until the end of March. At the end of March, donations will be converted to USD and delivered to Dorian Nakamoto. If the donations are rejected by Dorian, then the funds will go to a charity of his choice. If he doesn't want to choose a charity, they'll go to the EFF. In any case, the EFF is going to get some money probably. <laughs> and uh, so after the, any funds don't after the deadline would go to Dorian or the charity or the EFF. And apparently he's going to try to document this uh, all while trying to <laughs> preserve Dorian's uh, privacy as much as possible.
1: I think one, one thing they should also, of course, offer him is to keep the bitcoins if he wants to. Yeah, yeah.
0: Absolutely. I don't know why
1: no. that's not in that procedure. Yeah. Maybe. You know what we be extremely funny too is if there was some donation from Satoshi himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. They should, I, they should open up a Dogecoin. They should open up a coin address. <laughs> why doesn't why isn't there a Dogecoin charity?
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay, should we move on to Mount Gox? I mean I think we've we've said we um yeah, yeah. yeah we've announced last time they will probably come back to it and there has been some some news, not, not too much, but some interesting uh, new angles and stories about Mt. Gox. Absolutely. Um, so perhaps we can start with the, the first one, which is that there has been some movements of money that's linked to Mt. Gox. So if we kind of remember they've claimed that the eight hundred fifty thousand bitcoins have gone. They've been stolen. They don't have them anymore. Um, you now people have definitely questioned that. And of course, with the blockchain, you can you can do some analysis and uh, you can speculate in a kind of a evidence based way on what's been going on. And now, in 2011, there was a hack of Mt. Gox before, and people were suspecting that Mt. Gox is bankrupt. And what Mark Capelli what Mark did at the time was that he proved that he was in control of a very large amount of Bitcoin. I think it was about 420,000 Bitcoins by creating a transaction from the address controlling those. So we know that at the time they were in control of that. And that amount of money has not moved very much. So I think kind of from the pattern, um, it seemed likely that they were still in control of it, but of course it wasn't exactly clear. Now, or at least they are still in control of, of parts of that. Now, a few days ago, there was a large transaction of 180,000 Bitcoins that was you know, split in different ways. And, and people were thinking like, uh, is this Mt. Gox doing those? And now... Uh, Mount Cox has this withdrawal API, so it's it's kind of a feed of Mount Cox transactions, and apparently that's their database. That's kind of with their the transactions they create that's available online. I don't know why that is available. It doesn't make sense to me, but it is. And so what one guy has done is he's gone through that and. He was able to, so he was able to trace back at least one of those to that 180,000 transaction a few days ago. So essentially, this proves that they are in control of that. I mean, at least it proves it to you know a a very high degree of uh, certainty. I think. Yeah, it gives pretty strong evidence. It's Uh, pretty strong evidence that uh, Mount Gox. Markiplier is still is still in control of that.
0: Yeah, which uh, will tie into you know this other stuff we're going to talk about right right in a few minutes. But I, I'm I'm interested in in like trying to understand why. So why are these bitcoins being moved? So regardless of who's moving them, why would they be why would they uh, be moved? And why are they being split up into so many small? Fractions. So the bitcoin, the 180 bitcoins were split up into two addresses, and then those two addresses were split into four, and then like there's about six or seven or like, like, there's many, many levels deep of uh, of splitting these into smaller, smaller amounts on individual addresses. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I read somewhere
1: that they had a certain standard way of you know, kind of taking cold storage to hot storage and things like that, and that and that people were like looking at the pattern says so like, oh, they're probably perhaps doing that, but I, I don't know. I we I have no clue really.
0: Yeah, but if that was the case, like, uh, why would anybody do multiple levels deep of transactions to, uh, of splitting? Why not just split the hundred eighty right? from the beginning, you know?
1: Well, I think one, uh, yeah, I guess that's true. You could, you could create one transaction with many outputs. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Oh yeah. I have have no idea. I think uh, I'm pretty sure we will find the truth out about this at some point. I, I'm, I'm very hopeful at least. And, yeah, it, it should come out, I think, what happened here.
0: Mm-hmm. But we still
1: don't – we still really don't know, right? I mean we still just don't know what happened with Van Yeah.
0: Surprisingly, there's been very little news about it this week, even though you know, all these uh, kind of stories have been coming out and especially uh, stories about Mark Karpalis. Uh So there, there's, there's a few articles that were uh, published – on sort of not very mainstream blogs or sites, but kind of just went unnoticed. I mean, at least to me, I didn't say anything on like the bigger yeah. new sites like Coindesk. So we're, we're starting to kind of understand where, who Mark Karpelis is and kind of details about his past and some kind of shady deals he was involved with in the past. Uh, so there's two, in fact, three articles that I want to, point to so one is on uh, crypto crypto dot com and this was originally published in French yeah by Diana N- NGO and she describes in this article uh, kind of a deal that went sour where Mark Carpellis who also by the way has another company called uh, CaliHost. They're a hosting provider, so web hosting. So if you have a website and you want to put it online, you, you 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 use services from a web provi- web host provider. And so the story goes like this: that the, this this guy, this French businessman, wanted to get a website um, made. He approached uh, a Moroccan freelancer to do the work, kind of like on a. Uh, on a site where you can post jobs and, and be hired, kind of like a ODesk or something like that. That contract was not fulfilled by the Moroccan freelancer, and that businessman took the Moroccan freelancer to court, basically. And in that court proceeding the hosting provider was asked by the court to do kind of an expertise kind of give his expert uh, opinion on the state of development of the site right and that host was Kelly yeah. host so mark carpellus's hosting uh company which I, I
1: think didn't the guy the businessman ask him i think to to do it
0: right so this is afterwards right so the, yeah, the communications yeah. between this businessman who will call Monsieur Dubois, as they call him in the article, and Mark Carpellus began when Mark Carpellus was asked by the court to give his opinion about whether this site was usable or not, like the site that was developed by this Moroccan guy. And this is where the re- the relationship started, and this is where they started exchanging. And at, at, so during this time, Mark Carpellus, who also apparently had some sort of a business where they was making websites, said, "Well, I can I can take care of this for you. So while you're doing this, uh, while you're taking this Moroccan guy to court, like." We can work on your website, okay? So basically, we're good guys. We'll uh, we'll do it for you, and here's the price, right? So I think it was €20,000 or something like that. Yeah. And this was in 2010. So the deal is signed, and uh, there's a deal that's uh, agreed upon and a contract that's signed where the site would be delivered in three steps. So this is usually how this works, right? Like you have a first step, which is kind of the – the guidelines and then you have another step, which is like graphic work. And then a third step, which is development and the site delivery. And usually there's three payments. This is how it works usually anyway here in France. And so a few months pass and, uh, the, the businessman hasn't received anything yet. And Mark Carpelles kind of puts it off as, uh, being, uh, like his graphic designer didn't advance on the work. And that graphic designer would later attest that he had never had anything to do with Mark Carpellis. like he wasn't yeah with he wasn't involved in this project at all, and then more time goes by, and Mark Carpellis still doesn't uh provide any work and uh is unreachable and finally mr dubois uh uh, tries to take him to court and an expert determines that like 5% of the work has been done. Um, so this is kind of. Ghost-
1: well, and, and what he also did, right? He, he told the other guy, um, Oh, I'm in financial difficulties. Uh, please pay me the money in advance. And yeah. the guy paid him the money, even though uh, Carpelles hadn't done the work yet because the other guy trusted him because uh, i guess he had a very good uh, impression of capelli's yeah. uh, which obviously turned out to be uh, false yeah so, so i mean i i think the, the i guess the, the takeaway from this is that he just uh behaved in a very very shady to bordering criminal way in this case and of course that makes you wonder what is the guy capable of
0: yeah And so this was – this is pretty recent, right? So this – there was a a judgment uh, that fell in 2013 in which Mark Karpelis was – had to pay for damages to this businessman, Okay, Yeah. So this is pretty recent. And this article was published on March 3rd. So this was, uh, I believe, Monday or Tuesday, Right.
1: Of this yeah. week.
0: And this, to me anyway, went completely unnoticed. Nobody, I didn't hear about this like on on Reddit or on Coindesk or any of the other magazine sites. And then this morning as I'm researching this, I'm kind of going into it and, and searching also on French sites for uh, for information about Mark Carpellis and perhaps his past. And I fall upon this article written in Daily Tech, which was published on March 5th. So that is uh, Wednesday. Wednesday. Yeah. This really, really long article that kind of details Mark Karpels' life since early 2000s when he was uh, like in his early 20s and where he started from and all of his – all the problems that he's had and his dishonesty and whatnot. So – this led me to his blog, MagicalTux.net, uh, which is both in French and English. His, this blog has been up for many, many years. There's posts dating back to uh, early 2000s. And so on. So he's got this blog post, and the name of the post, it's in French. It was translated, I believe, uh, parts of it was translated uh, by this other guy. So here's how it goes. So the, the blog post is called "Pensee nocturne," which is which basically means like sleepless night thoughts. <laughs> so he writes this post like uh, he says it's two o'clock in the morning. You no, know, it's it's midnight. I can't sleep. I've been turning in my bed for two hours. Uh, I'm thinking about Japan, uh, and in this article he talks about how he's always been attracted to Japan ever since he was a kid, and some friend gave him uh, a CD full of SNES games like manga games. Um, and he, he says that when in his youth he did a lot of bad things, especially concerning payment systems. and he spent two years taking very large risks. Because it was exciting to him, and finally he got arrested, and that uh, he was kept in under arrest for four days, so essentially in, in prison for four days, and then he was released under judicial control, uh, with the orders of not uh, leaving France, and had to regularly go to the, regularly go to the court to, so that they could see that he was on the right path. In addition to this, they tried to get a better idea of who he was, of his personality. So I'm reading this article. I'm translating it as I as I as I read it. Um, so so
1: just briefly, yeah. that was that's still on his blog.
0: That's still on his blog. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. So it's blog It's published on February 12th of 2006. Yeah. And you you could find it also on Tumblr. So uh, on Tumblr, some guy translated part of it. So it's uh, John com. So John B E R C O W. And he's got a picture of him and like naked there. I don't know what the hell that is. So just to continue in this article. So so he was released, uh, placed under judicial control with uh, the, with. Um, so having to stay in France, not being able to leave France. And so the court tried to get a better idea of who he was and they made him see a psychologist. And that psychologist uh, asked him to do various tests, uh, IQ tests and things like that. And with, uh, and he developed a relationship with the psychologist who was also very interested in Japan and visited Japan quite often. And they made sort of a deal this is what he said. So the deal was simple. Uh, I I had to do research on the history of Japan, which was pretty easy for me, given that I was quite fond of Japan and knew a lot about it. I don't know if he had been to Japan yet uh, when he wrote this article. I I think so, yes. I mean, he had been to Japan already because he, he had one uh, trip to Japan for 10 days in 2006 and then came back to France. And went to Israel, and, and then eventually moved to Japan permanently. But I'll get back to that in a minute. So he had to do this report and gave the report to the to the psychologist, and the psychologist gave the report back to the court, saying that uh, he was not responsible for his actions and that the abuse of cannabis was bad for his moral health. And so he says, I was pretty shocked by this because I can put my hand to a fire that I've never smoked anything illegal. Um... And so he was given a three-month suspended sentence. So that means that you know you're, you've got a, a jail sentence, but if you don't do anything bad, then you're not going to go to jail. But if you get arrested again, then you will. You'll get that sentence plus whatever you get after, and that that sentence would disappear from his record after five years. So he was convicted of some sort yeah, of. Yeah, th- I mean,
1: three months too is not, not nothing.
0: Yeah, yeah, three months in jail. So yeah, he, he didn't go to jail, but. He got a three-month sentence in jail that would have been uh, – that he would have had to do if if he ever committed some sort of a crime again. Yeah. Um, and so this is – kind of gives us uh, an idea of who this guy is and what he's been involved in. Like He's been involved in this kind of illegal activity before surrounding payment systems. And what I, what I find interesting is how he says uh, – just to say that this concerns payment systems. I did bad things. It's concerning payment systems. I spent two years taking risks, larger and larger risks, maybe because it was exciting, but finally I stopped. So I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I, in, in, in my youth, uh, I mean, I didn't do anything like this bad, but I did kind of like, sometimes hack into people's computers on IRC channels and, you know, it was also very exciting, but uh, so I, I see where, where this is coming from. If if you have a, a, a high technical knowledge and, yeah. <laughs> and you can hack stuff, it is exciting. And that kind of gives you an idea of, uh, so if he was dealing with payment systems, it kind of gives you an idea of how far he was willing to take this. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I mean, I guess we can we we can take away again is that he's definitely had um, a very questionable past, and especially a whole bunch of different stuff. It's not like once as a kid he did some stuff, but then you know he scammed this other guy, and you know there there more stories.
0: Yeah, there's more to this. So there's a lot more to this. This is just the article on his blog. Yeah. Then there's the article in the Daily Tech that paints a picture of who he is and kind of goes through his life. And in this article, they talk about one thing which was just barely brushed upon. They talked about it on Reddit a little bit. But this week, somebody posted on – somebody went on the Mt. Gox RC chat. This apparent guy – this guy who's apparently Russian – saying that um, he has 20 gigabytes of documents uh, which would be like database dumps and identity information so when you create a Mt. Gox account you have to give your passport like a scan copy of your passport so apparently a lot of these documents uh, are in the hands of of hackers so he says also that He's not the hacker. He's just posting uh, um, for the hackers, I guess, in very bad English, by the way. And yeah. he posts also uh, some source code of Mt. Gox's PHP Bitcoin implementation, so proprietary, Bitcoin, a proprietary PHP code, which you would have to have access to their service to get, or at least somebody would have to send them, like, leak it to you. And he says that Mt. Gox's servers were in fact hacked. Uh, and he cites um, a vulnerability in, uh, in in their implementation of Linux. So they use Gentoo Linux and they use an old version which is which has vulnerabilities in it. And uh, he goes to say that whoever this guy is, like the people who have hacked Mt. Gox and gotten this database dump and all this personal information of the customers that they don't have any bitcoins. Now that's not to say that other hackers don't have bitcoins, but uh but they just want to um make this guy go to jail for for uh, you know being so negligent.
1: Yeah. No, I I I think it seems extremely unlikely that they didn't get hacked, you know? I mean, they got hacked in 2011 and they perhaps got hacked once or several times since then but the 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 question is really assuming that they had some kind of cold storage and it seems incredible that they wouldn't have had one and then the question is uh where did those bitcoins go yeah and were they really all stolen the way carpeles said they were which just does not seem plausible or did he perhaps Does he still have some or did he just make this up in the first place and sold them himself? And of course, if we look at these stories here, it certainly paints a picture of someone who might have been, who might have been capable of, you know, lying about this and stealing the stuff himself or, or parts of it. Yeah.
0: I encourage you all to go to dailytech.com dot com and read this article because there's lots of stuff here that we're, I, I don't think we're really going to get into, but where uh, you know it talks about uh, relationships he's had with his previous employers and just kind of like being in misconduct and not working uh, while like working on personal projects all day long while he was working for this other company, uh, being arrested apparently another time uh, after because he went to Israel in two thousand five and. Uh, Was apparently fired and had to come back to France and was arrested by the uh, the basically the French tech police when he arrived back. Uh, So it's it's really it's very long article. It's 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 super long, but it's it's very very interesting and insightful about him and his personality and you know who he is really. And if you if you understand French, uh, if you can read French, also read his some of his posts on his blog. It's it's kind of crazy that they're still there. Actually, like. I don't understand why he wouldn't have taken them down.
1: It's little. also what's astonishing as well about all of this is how this was not a story before. How people didn't yeah. really look into yeah. this and kind of say like, uh, are, "Are we sure um, this is the right person to run the biggest bitcoin exchange?" Yeah. Um, but I guess now those are coming up as people kind of dig into his past. Uh, of course, they should have come up much earlier. Or perhaps they did come up at some point, but they didn't get uh, the attention they should have.
0: Yeah, I'm just kind of astonished that uh, the, the people that have worked with him before in France haven't come forward to say, like, oh, I've worked with this guy, he's completely dishonest. Or, yeah. Because uh, he was working for quite a few companies in France uh, beforehand. Yeah. Um, so he worked for an M- M- mmorpg uh developer company he also worked for uh photovista um a uh, like a stock photo pr- yeah. um platform and uh yeah so yeah
1: so it's um kind of worrying news we have there about Carpelis and about Gox. And uh, I guess we will we'll come back once again to this. I mean, I think we've been covering it every week for a month now or yeah. more, and uh, I'm sure this is not the last.
0: Yeah, it's ob- of course it's not because now there's a lawsuit. So I just want to touch on this briefly. There's a lawsuit by a London law firm, a class action lawsuit uh, that's representing over 200 claimants from China, the U.S., Canada, and 12 European countries. Uh, and that will launch proceedings against And uh, There's yeah. possible fraud accusations there, so uh, I think in any case we're going to hear more about this if this lawsuit, which probably will go through, like once it goes through. Uh, and yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I so I guess
1: let's let's stay tuned, and we'll come back, and I'm sure at some point we will hopefully. Kind of have the whole story and be able to go back and say, okay, here is exactly what happened. So far, we still don't know. Yeah. But uh, worrying signs about Mark Capelli's. Yeah, so uh, let's, let's move on. We have a few more uh, kind of more brief stories that we can cover uh, that have happened this week. One is that uh, blockchain.info has acquired another company. They're called RTBTC, which stands for Real-Time Bitcoin Trading. Um, a, the company is created by a guy named Clark Moody, who apparently is known. I didn't know him before, but apparently is known for creating a lot of Bitcoin charts. Uh, so charts like price charts with, uh, you know, candlestick or line charts, etc., all those things. Um now, uh, RTBTC was a kind of a, a dashboard that you could connect your Bitcoin accounts with on different exchanges. So it allowed you to trade on different exchanges like using one central platform, and you know it has its own um, analytics and charts, etc., to kind of yeah, I guess make sense of the differences between exchanges, maybe the order book. So uh, I guess the target of this was the day traders who wanted to maybe leverage the differences between exchanges or if they felt like one exchange leads the other one in price, maybe they would recognize the price changes first and and things like that. Um, Now, blockchain is going to Combine this with Zero Block, which they've acquired a few weeks ago. And uh, Zero Block, of course, is a very popular um, iPhone application and Android application, and now also a kind of a web newsfeed and uh, chart site. And they're going to combine that. So now you're going to have a central platform to trade Bitcoin on different exchanges plus a newsfeed, plus the charts. So the idea is to have this uh, trading terminal for professional investors and I guess day traders. Um, so I, I saw somewhere that they, they call this, that they kind of strive to be the Bloomberg of Bitcoin. Bloomberg, of course, is a big financial news site, but they're most famous for, and I think they make most of their money with the terminals. So Bloomberg terminals are very expensive. They cost I think twenty thousand dollars per terminal per year. Um, and they're kind of computers and uh, they have a special access to uh, news, data feeds, price feeds, etc. So if you care a lot about having the information about financial markets the fastest in order to make money on top of them, then uh, you would get one of those Bloomberg terminals. So you know, if you go in an investment bank, the trading floors, or everyone has a Bloomberg terminal. So I think they are trying to do something similar for Bitcoin. Of course, a very different price point and uh, this is going to cost $20 per month versus $20,000 per year for the uh, Bloomberg but
0: this is really interesting cuz I, I think we were talking to Dan Held at uh, at the Berlin conference and he was saying that i think it was Dan uh, he was, yeah, saying, yeah, was, he Dan was Held, saying that yeah. you know moving forward they want to offer kind of premium services for bitcoin traders and, you know APIs and such so this kind of goes into i think their strategy which is really interesting and uh, yeah, yeah.
1: No, I mean, he said he can't quite go into detail what they're doing, but he was sort of hinting at it. So I guess this may have been it. I think this was what he was hinting uh, to us about.
0: Yeah. So this is being in, integrated into – what's interesting is, yeah, so this is being integrated into zero block and not blockchain.
1: Yeah, so I guess Zero Block will be like a, a separate property of blockchain, which makes sense no? because blockchain is that. I mean, I, they have a whole bunch of properties now. Yeah. There's a blockchain.info, which is the block explorer. Then there's blockchain.com, which is the wallet. Uh, or I guess it's still a blockchain.info, but it will be a blockchain.com, and then Zero Block will be the sort of professional trading financial information platform. And uh, so, well, Zeroblock is actually going to be uh, also Bitcoin market information, but for free, it's already there and for everyone. And then, Zeroblock.com slash trading is going to be the premium paid for service that's, that's being developed together with RTBTC. Really so, yeah, true. they have a whole bunch of different products. Yeah. It's interesting What's also- how
0: it's interesting how this kind of spawn like Zero Block and all of what they're building upon Zero Block is just really spawned from from Dan's app because Dan had originally developed the app and, and and sold it to to blockchain. No, that's
1: right. Right, the app was really nice. I think it's great UI, and I I like Zero Block a lot. But you know, it was really a price, a news feed. and. And some charts, and that was it. And now they're building this into, uh, you know, really a comprehensive platform. So yeah, it's great. Yeah. What's What's also really cool? So there was an interview on Bloomberg with the CEO of Blockchain, Nick Carey. and I didn't know this, but um, apparently, Blockchain info is a hundred percent Bitcoin company which goes as far as that he said they don't even have a bank account. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. So I guess they must be able to pay their rent with Bitcoin and uh, they obviously pay all their salaries with Bitcoin. Perhaps people use Coinbase or something like that to trade some to uh, U.S. dollars to
0: you know pay for their rent and things like that. And so, yeah, it's really cool. That's really interesting. Uh, I'm really disappointed I didn't get to go down to Paris this week and see him. <laughs> yeah, but also uh, I, I was watching. Uh, I think in an, an interview with Andreas Antonopoulos who says also that like they don't even hold any of the keys. Everything's in the browser. Uh, the yeah, like, that's right. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's it's encrypted on their site. Uh, so in it, I think it's decrypted in your browser when you yeah. use your password. So if you do have a blockchain.info wallet, um, then, you know, in a sense, they can get hacked. And uh, if you lose the password, I think it's not recoverable. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were talking about that with Dan Held a bit too, that apparently, you know, this is really strong uh, differentiation between Coinbase and blockchain.info. And apparently they, they were part of this... They were part of Y Combinator together and then they split up. And, uh, which was that uh, blockchain.info wanted to be, um, a, sort of a pure Bitcoin company and they didn't want to hold the private keys of the users. Whereas Coinbase wanted to go more into, you know, making Bitcoin accessible. And I think once they said they want to be the Gmail of Bitcoin, so really a lot about usability and uh, easing that friction. Mm-hmm. And Now, of course, Coinbase very much is a U.S. dollar Bitcoin uh, company, you know, f- with uh, works a lot with banking relations and all those things. So it's very interesting how those uh, those split and how those have really different approaches. And I think I think both are really. Needed, very important.
0: Yeah, but uh, you know, uh, you're you're right. Both are needed, but I think we need to just very you know, be very careful of how um, how we approach as consumers and Bitcoin users, uh, Bitcoin custodian uh, companies like Coinbase. And so, you know, not that 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 they yeah. can't be trusted, but they need to be held accountable and transparent. And, uh, and this kind of goes into what we were saying last week. Um, about transparency and accountability, but those companies yeah, no, need so to be held, especially those companies, they need to be held to be a very high level of transparency and accountability.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. Hopefully, that will come now with the Richard the disaster, of course. And it, I mean, they Coinbase has already let Andreas and Chernobyl in, so he looked at their. Um, at their, you know, internal security tools and monitoring tools, which is one step. But of course, what would really be great is if they made somehow their holdings public on the blockchain, you know, so it it could be independently verified at all times. And uh, I think it seems likely to me that some companies will do that in the future and they could have a, a real... Yeah, competitive advantage that way. Actually, I, I do remember now, I think uh, there has been some audit of Bitstamp last week, and they they were able to prove that they do own all the funds they're supposed to own.
0: Really? I didn't see this.
1: Uh, I think so. I, I did not read the story in great detail, so I may, may be slightly wrong, but uh, that's how I remember it.
0: Well, that's good. At least, uh, you know, the responsible bitcoin companies out there are working towards gaining trust from the from the customers which i think is a yeah feature. yeah
1: cool so we have uh, another story from the uk which is a very positive story where we have uh, have been having a lot of negative stories recently <laughs> and uh, in the uk it's been the bitcoin regulations have been very vague and unclear and there's been a kind of a confusion about what the Bitcoin is, I guess, as in many other places. And they did classify it for a while as a voucher. Now, that has certain tax implications, particularly about VAT. So apparently, if you sell the voucher, then uh, you're supposed to pay VAT on the value of the voucher. Although this doesn't really make sense to me. But apparently, that, that, that at least there was a lot of uncertainty around that, and now there's been a, a guidance released by um, the HMRC, which means I think Her Majesty's uh, <laughs> HMRC, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. It's good to know the Queen's getting involved with Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so they've clarified the VAT the status of Bitcoin. So if you sell Bitcoins, there's no VAT. Uh, and also there's no VAT on the profit margin. So let's say I buy a Bitcoin for, or let's say I'm in exchange and I buy a Bitcoin for $650 and I sell it to you for $680. There's also no need to pay VAT on that margin. And uh, there's no VAT on mining revenues. Now, the most important thing of those is that there's no VAT on the sale of Bitcoin. If there had been, this would have been completely disastrous. Like, uh, just if we think about that too, like, let's say I buy from you in a store, I pay for my meal of 20 pounds with uh, Bitcoin. Now, if Bitcoin had been, you know, if this had been treated, as some sort of good then then y- I would be selling you uh the bitcoin and um, you would have to, or I would have to pay v a t on that and then you'd be selling me some good and you have to pay v a t on that so it would be twice paying v a t there yeah, yeah which would make it completely impossible to use bitcoin for. Uh, transactions and it would be make it impossible to operate a Bitcoin exchange, and so this has all been fine. So essentially, you can use Bitcoin. It's treated in terms of VAT just like other money. just like British pounds, for example. So
0: that's this is very, very positive
1: cool. news. Yeah, that's very cool. yeah, very cool. Uh, it's also interesting. I think that there is no Bitcoin exchange in the UK, not one, and. I don't know if it's because of this uncertainty that there was around VAT treatment, but it's possible at least. So hope, hopefully we will see a Bitcoin exchange in the f- near future in, in the UK. I, I I don't know if there's any plans, but I, I think it's something that's really needed. I think the, the, at the moment, the biggest the biggest volume in the pound bitcoin market is through local bitcoins and you know as great as local bitcoins is that's not really
0: ideal yeah now do you think that it, now that this um guidance ha- has been uh, suggested that this would open up a possibility for a british bitcoin exchange I certainly hope so. I, I mean, I think the
1: other difficulty from what I've heard is that banks are not particularly welcoming. Mm-hmm. Of course, one one side is the regulations, and that seems to be pretty straightforward now. Um, but if you can get a bank account, then that doesn't particularly help. Uh, so maybe that's also a reason why there hasn't been a Bitcoin exchange. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, but at least... It seems that in terms of uh, BAT regulations now, it's, it's straightforward to do it. And there's no hurdles on that side anymore.
0: Thank you, Your Majesty, for your Bitcoin guidance. Yes. <laughs> okay. So does Her Majesty have a Bitcoin wallet? Um,
1: we don't know yet. <laughs> <but>
0: <laughs> well, this is good news. Well, yes, well, definitely good news. Uh, yeah, I wonder uh, how this will affect uh, Bitcoin trading in other European countries. Of course, you know the UK is not in the uh, the eurozone. That's
1: right. But, uh, so uh, I'm actually not aware of any country at the moment that charges VAT on Bitcoin sales. There may, there may be one, and I missed it. Mm-hmm. Of course, if there was, that kills Bitcoin in a lot of ways. I know it's actually interesting because I, I know a guy here in Berlin who's really looked into this and he thinks there could be even here. Because I guess there's different sides to it, right? There's the financial regulation side and then there's a tax side. And those are different entities that regulate those. So you may have the financial regulator saying one thing about Bitcoin. You may have the tax, uh, the tax authority saying another thing. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so far I, I also hear you know no nobody charges Bitcoin on VAT on uh, VAT on Bitcoin sales, and uh, hopefully that will never happen. I, I don't think it will. But yeah, no, it's it's good news, and hopefully we'll see much more activity in the UK. I, I do think that the London Bitcoin scene is quite active. A lot of startups. I'm, I'm going there actually in uh, two weeks. Really? For a few days. Cool. So I'll try to meet up with some people there too.
0: No, you lived in London for a while, right? Yeah, I lived in London for three years. Right. So do you do you, you must have some friends there. Like, uh, Do you uh, get a feel of what the Bitcoin community is like there and how things are progressing? Um, well, I know
1: that the first Bitcoin ATM launched in London a few days ago. It's actually uh, right up. It's in... Right opposite the bar I used to go to, and I know I know the pub where they, they've been accepting Bitcoin for a while. Actually, the pub owner built his own uh, point of sale system. It's pretty impressive. Um, so I, I I do think it's quite active. Also, I know the meetup group is really big. They have like more than a thousand members and very wow. active. I, I think from my understanding is it's quite active. There's, in terms of real-world uh, acceptance, like physical places accepting Bitcoin, there's definitely much more here in Berlin. But in terms of, uh, you know, there's a very active tech startup scene in London. And, um, yeah. yeah, so, I, I, yeah, I think it's, it's pretty positive. Awesome. Yeah, so um, I think that was it for this week.
0: Yeah, lots of stories. We could go. On. We we have more stories, but uh, just, we're just out of time. We gotta, uh, Yeah, I gotta think we've the covered
1: the most important. Absolutely. And,
0: yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much for listening uh, to our, and thanks for everybody who's been tuning in since the first episode. We're really excited to be on episode ten, and uh, really excited about this this journey that we're on with the podcast and everything around it. Uh, we're going to be releasing. I think two or three more episodes. I forget how many about the conference. Uh, um, now yes, we're going okay, into like we're, we're done with the interviews. Now we're actually getting into like talks and presentations and uh, and the the panels that were there. So we'll be releasing uh, as as always on Wednesday for the next few weeks. So please uh, keep tuning into those and send us your your praise. People have been talking to us on Twitter saying how the, how how they appreciate the, that content uh, also you can follow us on twitter we're at btc and uh, please tip us epicenter slash tips and you can find our bitcoin tip address our litecoin tip address and our dogecoin tip address there
1: yeah absolutely and uh, one more thing so if you want to have us cover a certain thing if you have a question about bitcoin you can also uh, send that in and we'll try to talk about it on the show and uh, finally, if you want to sign up for a newsletter, we send out every Friday with the kind of, you know, uh, analysis of news and developments. So you can do that at epicenterbitcoin.com slash newsletter. So uh, thanks very much and we we'll look forward to next week.
0: See you next week.